Section 6 of The Heirloom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by David Ewan. The Heirloom by T. Duthie Lyle. Volume 1, Chapter 6, Love and Treasure. As in the recital of these present portions of our story, the course of events spread themselves over considerable series of years, it becomes necessary that we should, from time to time, indulge in long strides over certain portions of time, or perhaps it would be more to the point were we to say that it is necessary for the purpose of this history that the events happening in certain spaces of time should be chronicled only with more fleeting pen and without the exactness with which we have sometimes portrayed the course of events with which we are concerned. From this time forward, from his first visit, the possession of Vernwood by Bertram, Gunnalt and his residence there rather than as some event in far-off future as if it were in perspective seemed more to assume the likeness of accomplished fact. His was not now the life of the wandering homeless adventurer fighting almost against hope for the maintenance or the recovery of his rights, but rather that of the proven descendant of Lawrence and Hubert Gunnalt almost within possession of his own. Almost his was as the homecoming of the heir, but it was not in any respect the desire of the newcomer to displace or disturb the declining years of the aged lifelong tenant of Vernwood. And now, rather than as owner, Bertram loitered at Vernwood as only a guest, for in fact as yet, that shrewd man, Mr. Lumley, had not completed those somewhat protracted formalities which were deemed necessary in the exacting eye of the English law, and until they were completed, Bertram Gunnalt could not congratulate himself on being quite monarch of all he surveyed, on being the man in possession, pure et simple. He had set foot in England, if not an absolutely penniless, yet not rich man, as we have already said, and impetuous adventurers cannot become possessors in fee simple of valuable estates without any trouble at all, or as a rule without litigation enough to unhinge an ordinary mind. But these little monetary difficulties were such, in this case, that the astute Metropolitan solicitors Wyndham and Lumley pretty clearly saw their way through. Gentlemen reared and trained and schooled in the law have a knack of seeing their way through, nay, of overcoming such obstacles, while other and commoner and more simple-minded mortals lay floored, helplessly floundering, and in nautical phrase, upon their beam ends. In this transitional state were affairs when one day, as Bertram was lounging in the library, where he had become a sort of guest at pleasure of Captain and Marjorie Gillingham, and to the latter of whom the society of the young American claimant seemed in no way distasteful, 
A letter was handed to him which bore a London postmark and was inscribed in that unmistakable style of calligraphy, externally which admitted of no doubt in the recipient's mind that its place of emanation and origin was Messrs. Wyndham and Lumley's office. Bertram broke the seal and read, So Lumley was squared Parkfield, he said thoughtfully as he glanced rapidly through the plain legible clerically calligraphy in which was inscribed in that concise and definite style, peculiar to the epistles by which the profession instruct their recipients on the details of law. Now Parkfield was, or speaking more exactly, the name of Parkfield represented the largest of the remaining charges on the Vernwood lands, which up to now had not been absolutely or actually within Messrs. Wyndham and Lumley's control and the importance of Bertram's communication as to squaring Parkfield will be appreciated fully by the intelligent as it will be seen that it meant the breaking down of the last of the many bulwarks and perplexities which stood between Bertram Gunnault and the practically final substantiation of his claim, the attainment of his rights. Perhaps not unnaturally, it was with an exultant tone that Bertram unthinkingly gave expression to his thoughts. But the gray-haired old man who sat opposite to him read the Times, laid down its broad sheet with deep, long-drawn respiration. It was a respiration which could not be called anything less heartfelt or less ominous than a groan. Bertram Gunnell glanced across the room at his aged, white-haired host with, with very much Surprise, for a groan implies a pain, deep sorrow of heart or regret, and these were sentiments which the young American under the circumstances could be hardly expected to share or to feel. And they will have us turn out of the old house, he murmured, almost querulously, apparently as much addressed to himself in soliloquy as to either Bertram or his own daughter, Marjorie, who sat near him. Why, who wants? Who will ever want you to turn out of the old home? asked Bertram. After a long pause, Captain Gillingham turned to his paper in a peevish, discontented mood, and after the manner of some old men, from his boldest leader down to the fluctuations of the most insignificant stock on the exchange, continued item by item to wade slowly and laboriously through the weighty matter of the leading journal from end to end. Marjorie's busy fingers flew deftly but nervously through the mazy toils of some shadowy woolwork on which she was engaged as she sat watching his every mood by her father's side. Then how are we to stay here? At length, fretfully, resumed the old man, if the house is to be turned inside out and everything to be turned upside down. Once more he laid aside his times. The house is not to be turned inside out, Bertram replied, or upside down. Beating with his foot with an air of impatience on the floor, the pettish old man once more relapsed into thought or into what is called a brown study. If I live here on the estate, what is to prevent my occupying the dower house? asked Bertram. 
The other day, as I passed there in my rambles, I saw that the house was void. In fact, it looks as if on the verge of tumbling down. This suggestion seemed to impart to Captain Gillingham a new light onto the position of affairs. On a wide rocky plateau or cleft on the side of one of the successive and wooded hills, which was the leading natural features of Vernwood, in fact, that feature which above all went to make up its natural beauty, some past or forgotten owner had taken advantage of what, from its unique surroundings, was a site of unequaled beauty for the erection of a cottage now known as the Dower House. Whatever might have been the purpose of its originator from whatever it might have derived, the appellation by which it is known, the Dower House or Dower Cottage of Vernwood, had from time to time been used as a subsidiary abode or convenience to the great house or from time to time sooner than be allowed to lapse into the state of dilapidation into which the unused residences commonly fall, had been occupied by some servant of the estate, or from time to time again it had remained void. It was in this condition that it had been observed by the new claimant in his wanderings of inspection over his newly acquired estate. With its well-planned and well-tended gardens, its vineries, its stable accommodation, its domestic offices, the Vernwood Dower House possessed all the accessories and adaptability of separate and independent residence, a dwelling as distinct from the household of Vernwood Mansion as if it had been another abode. What might have been the purpose for which it had been by its original builder intended was not clearly known, but like other portions of Vernwood, it had shared and survived the many vicissitudes of fortune and of time which with the successive generations of those who had occupied it had overtaken and been the lot in history of the estate. It was of this then that Bertram was thinking when he spoke to Captain Gillingham of the Dower House in the event of his finally establishing his title to the property as his own. And so it came to pass within some few months of this that the Dower House passed into the hands of a small army of painters and decorators and those other refurbishers whose function it is to reanimate and by their touches to revive the smile of beauty onto the prosacal side of life to make a wicked and ordinary world as near an approach to fairydom as with the contamination near it of fallen and erring humanity. It is possible by human hands aided by human intelligence to accomplish or assume. Possessed of all its own natural advantages, the surroundings of the Dower House became under Bertram Gnault's directions metamorphosed as under the magic spell and influence of some of Necromancer's wand, lawns and gardens which had relapsed almost into primeval exuberance of overgrowth were tamed by culture and horticultural art. Architectural ornamentation now stood where ruin and decay had once scarce left together stone on stone, while its interior, by the introduction of those embellishments, which wealth and art and taste can accomplish,
became transformed into the likeness of the tiny garden palace of some fabled potentate of Eastern lore. Fairly resident on his own property and impelled by the American spirit of enterprise, which he had caught from his origin with the feverish energy of that adventurous land, Bertram Gunnell's activity in his affairs became incessant and intense. The luxuriance of his southern habits, notwithstanding, if all the traditions of his house were not revived, if all the rude splendors of an historic ancestry should not be outshone by the more costly, more splendid, more refined, more artistic developments of modern culture, the fault should not be Bertram Gunnall's. So Bertram mentally resolved. That which had, as we have said, been overlooked or forgotten by the overreaching rapacity of those harpies whose talons had become embedded in Vernwood, the new owner saw and appreciated and valued at its fullest importance and force. Machinery, powerful in construction, almost weird in aspect, arrived and was set up on the distant outlying lands of the estate. At every turn, were met men rugged of aspect of exteriors, unkempt with horny hands, and burly bearded men, rough and loud in talk, men who are the sinew and marrow of our world, whose lives are half spent in the bowels of the earth, grubbing in darkness for its greatest light, digging and delving, that those above them may luxuriate in the fruits of their toil, digging and delving, that others may spend, digging and delving, that others may enjoy, digging and delving, that others may grasp, and appropriate and lavish and squander and scatter the riches of the earth, which their sinew and muscle and hardihood and even their lives secure. Barren-looking moors, which his forefathers would have bartered away as worthless to pay the pressing claims of exorbitant mortgages. Bertram Gnault converted into a multiplication and a roiling over and over of wealth, that which others had made only to minister to their extravagance and dissipation. Bertram converted into mines of gold. With the ebon-visaged boy Jules Messet ever attendant on him, the successful claimant had settled down into the domestic life of the dower house, which had become beautiful by almost all that makes life desirable and beautiful to enjoy, nor was the current of life at the larger mansion in any degree changed except that the ever-furrowing, ever-wrinkling hand of time left deeper and deeper year by year its trail of age upon Captain Gillingham's brow bending still lower that aging form, weakening still that tottering tread, causing tremor to that palsied hand. But simultaneously with the declining days of the old man's life, simultaneously with his growing infirmities and puerilities of old age, which Bertram ever went out of his way to indulge to mitigate and to endure another and a brighter sun, arose diffusing its rays over Bertram's life, brighter and brighter, shedding a benign and softening influence as the unfolding of Marjorie Gillingham's ripening charms, ever spreading and maturing into a perfect womanhood, cast an energizing influence over his actions and infused a purifying and controlling and softening power into his life. 
with that natural yearning and entwining which springs indigenous from true womanhood like the tendrils of some entwining plants stretch forth their arms and yearn for the communion of another self. Marjorie Gillingham's heart went forth towards the stronger support of Bertram Gnaltz. No clandestine liaison seemed this, but one of those gods sent heaven-made unions of heart which omen felicitously for both happiness in this world and perhaps happiness and a still greater, longer, and more unbroken and enduring union, a purer joy in some far-off, unconceived world of beauty and undreamed of joy to come, as in some other life than our poor earth-pent souls can imagine or conceive, a felicity that we dare scarcely admit even into our thoughts, such is heaven and such is love. Who among men can draw the subtle distinction between perfect heaven and perfect love? Is not the one that here upon earth a foretaste or like some faint foreshadowing of what the other is in heaven? It was something of this like upon which the old father of Marjorie Gillingham smiled as with halting tread and labored breath he tottered onward step by step along an easy descent of life towards the common end, the common accomplishments of all men. For this narrative, it would be superfluous, it would be idle to mince matters, there is no object but to admit that, as Marjorie Gillingham's heart went forth in all its power, so there is no need to admit other than that Bertram Gunnell loved Marjorie Gillingham with a passionate love, a love it seemed too sweet, too precious, too pure, too beautiful, either to be broken in upon, a thing too scared, either to be broken or to last. The passionate love of those two young hearts, each to each of the inestimable worth of countless worlds. I know how poor is language when we come to tell of the deepest phrases of even human love for what pen or tongue or measure can span its length, its breadth, its depth, its height, when it soars as high as heaven, as high as wide as countless worlds, as deep as a thousand seas whose floors are dotted with pearls as uncountable as the sand grains which fringe the endless reaches of their shores, who shall presume to intrude upon the hallowed sacredness of such a love? End of section six. Read by David Ewan.